Just a friendly reminder that this podcast is for informational purposes only. This is not medical advice. If you need medical advice, please see your healthcare provider. I am a mom of two. I have an 11-year-old and a nine-year-old little boys. I started as an associate's degree nurse back in 2004, and thanks to the amazing tuition reimbursement I get from my employer, I was able to go through my doctorate in nursing. My whole career has been in mother-baby nursing or in the postpartum world, and the idea of going back to the medical world is just not there for me. (laughs) Why not? I love the family. I love seeing the family come together and become. Watching a family, the angst of a family when you're dealing with medical or surgical issues, it's not, it's just not the same. As watching them It's watching them together and and become and it's like, wow, we were just a couple and now we have this tiny little human to keep alive and watching them just fall in love with this child that was growing inside of them. And it's an amazing experience to experience as well. So I can imagine that watching it in so many different situations, like family situations, family relationships must be beautiful. Yes. And doing this as long as I have, we're now starting to see the babies I took care of as when I was a new grad, they're getting old enough to start having their own babies. So that whole cycle coming around is, it's fascinating. (laughs) And I've stayed in the same area of Northeast Ohio the whole time. So I know I'll see some of those families come through. That is so cool. Yeah. And I'm super excited to see, to see that and watching the nurses that I've grown up with start having their own families and watching that cycle happen. And our kids the same age, it's just, I I don't think I realized until I went to nursing school, what OB could really be. Yeah. And and I mean, what other opportunity do you have? to see what it can be before that, really, when Mm -hmm. you think about it, right? Yeah. So what first got you interested in in that area? Like you you obviously love it. Why did you go that way? It was my OB clinicals. I was in nursing, I was in my program and my one faculty that was there, she was a midwife and she taught for the school I went to And she, you could tell she absolutely loved what she did. She taught the OB section of our program and she absolutely came alive during that. Mm -hmm. And before this, I wanted to do something like ER or ICU. Mm -hmm. And I enjoyed those rotations. It's like, all right, I could see myself doing this. And then I get to the last semester and we're in OB and it was in a smaller, um, like a downtown hospital, it's not there anymore. And just walking on the unit, it's like everything clicked. Like we're talking in class about what fetal monitoring looks like or what this looks like or the C-section or the postpartum care or lactation. It's like everything clicked. It's like, this is where I need to be. That's such a, such a good feeling when you find your niche for nursing, yes. for any career, but really for nursing, I find it's it's a whole whole different experience than when you're doing other things. You might be interested in them. It's not that you still can't learn from them and, and that they're not valuable, but when you find that one spot where you really feel it's just the right fit for you, that's the best feeling in the world. Oh, yeah. You've been an OB nurse your whole career then. Yes. I was an aide in the orthopedic unit, and that was pretty awesome too, but once I hit that OB, it w- that was it. An orthopedic unit. That's different. Mm-hmm. It, back in the early 2000s, OB units did not take new graduate nurses. And I happened in at a time with two other people that were coming in as new grads. And we were the trial run for our group, I think. And all three of us have done pretty well. I still work with one of them three times a week. She's on the unit with me. And the other one is a nurse manager at one of our other hospitals. Well, that's really like a cool. postpartum unit. So we've we've stuck together this whole time. Postpartum has been there for us. That's amazing. And do you want to talk about, because I have a lot of listeners who aren't in the medical field at all, and mm-hmm. their only interaction with an OB nurse would 
usually be when they give birth. <laughs> right. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what your role is? My role right now, I am the staff educator, but for the postpartum nurse, you are the one I, I'm talking for the um, U.S. system, not the Canadian. Yeah. So I know there's a big difference and listening to your podcast, the Canadian system just sounds better. <laughs> um, what we do here is the postpartum nurses, we usually start taking care of the new family about two hours after birth happens. Whether you've had a C-section or a vaginal birth, we take over care from the labor and delivery nurses. Right. And we are the ones that help you with latching the baby or teaching you how to position the baby to bottle feed, ensuring you that, yes, it is okay to feel like you're having a meltdown tonight. This is normal. We are the support system for that new family. We deal with all of the patient education, um, tying up those loose ends from all of the classes they may have taken prenatally, ensuring them that this is normal you're going to be okay. You're doing awesome. You are the perfect mom for this baby. This is okay. And that you're going to survive when you go home. All important messages. Yes. So it is similar to the Canadian system then because our postpartum nurses function pretty much the same way. Uh, We just, I guess the difference with ours is that we have a pretty big midwife population as well. In that case, when you see a midwife, you don't see a labor and delivery nurse and you don't see a postpartum nurse unless you know you have some kind of need for additional obstetrical care but other than that it sounds it sounds pretty similar you said your your favorite thing is is seeing the families would you say that's your favorite part of your job yes watching the family come together you see them come out to us and like they're, they have this tiny little thing that just came out of her or person with uterus. They don't know how to hold the baby, handle the baby. They, they treat this little baby like it's a, like it's a piece of glass. <laughs> and by the time they go home, they can change the baby. They can swaddle the baby. They can dress the baby. Watching that progression as, um, I was a night shift nurse until I took the educator job and I could come in on Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night and see that progression happen from her, not from the family, not knowing what to do to, I got this. I can put my baby skin to skin. I can, bre- I can breastfeed my baby. I I'll tell you what I need and I'll call you when I'm ready. Like you got, you, it, it, it's such a nifty thing to watch. Yeah, it's funny. It's exactly, Kelly said almost the exact same thing on the last episode when I had her on. (laughs) She loved watching the family come together and just the growth over the period of time that uh, they're in the hospital with you guys. Yes. And when we have a good working group together, when lactation team is Mm -hmm. on point and the pediatrician is there and the OB or the midwife is there and all of us can come together and get them and get the parents what they need. It, it, it's an amazing dance. A good interdisciplinary team is, is yes. the best. <laughs> yes, it is. And would you say there's any common misconceptions about your role at, or the role of a postpartum nurse? Do you think that people have a misunderstanding about what you guys kind of do? I believe there is still a misunderstanding about what we do when talking to other nurses. And there's also a misconception about what we do when the families finally get to us. So when listening to other nurses from other disciplines, we're still, oh, you guys rock babies and cuddle them all day? It's like, no, no, we're, we're making sure the baby stays nice and pink and that mom's not trying to hemorrhage and educating and therapist. And there's so many different hats that we wear as postpartum nurses. And the families spend so much time preparing for labor and the labor process and what happens during labor. And oh my God, am I really going to poop during labor? And there's almost no time spent on that postpartum period. And I, I can even say as somebody that worked in postpartum, when I had my two children, I was not prepared. 
I'm not prepared. I cannot expect these families to come in prepared to deal. And all I can do is share that experience. It's like, if I work here and didn't know, I don't expect you guys to run a race of perfection. I, I can't expect that. It's like little tiny bits of success and we're good to go. You have to hold on to those small wins in postpartum, I think. And I think you're so right. There's not enough education. It's exactly the same in Canada. There's a huge gap. You know, all the prenatal courses here, their focus is birth. And all your talks with your providers, even me who saw midwives, and I'd say overall that they're a little bit more good. Yeah, at the education aspect, they do try to educate about postpartum, but it's hard because, you know, mom is excited for birth. And after you have the baby, you're exhausted. So your information retainment is not that great. Correct. So when is the best time to tell people about postpartum, I think is one of the biggest challenges of educating families is that you know, when is the best window of opportunity to provide you with this information and when you're going to remember what I'm telling you. And it, it it's hard. I, I get it, but we need to make a better effort to right. prepare people because there's so many situations where I've heard women and just from having people on talking about their birth, where women feel totally lost and just unprepared and just where families feel lost and unprepared and they don't know who to go to or something as simple as that. It's, you know, they don't know which resource to look at. Or I had someone on last week who said, you know, I didn't get any discharge instructions about my C-section scar. And it's things that if you were in any other situation, you know, we wouldn't discharge someone with a big giant wound on another unit and be like, well, good luck. And I'm not, not saying that that's nursing's fault. It's just, it's just, when do we have the time to cover every single topic in depth? We're just, we have to do it spread out and we're just not, we're not meeting that need in the prenatal portion. That's for sure. Yeah. That one right there. I kind of think that goes back to childbirth is just childbirth and a C-section. Yeah. It's just childbirth. And I think some people don't realize, no, you had major abdominal surgery. Exactly. You had your stomach cut open to bring this life out. And it's not just a Band-Aid over a scrape. No. It, it, needs, it needs care. Yeah, exactly. And, and for some reason, and it's not just pe- like moms that I hear this from, even other professionals like allied health professionals. My pelvic physiotherapist was saying, you know, she has so many women come to her with the same issue. Yes. So it, it's, you know, it's ongoing and it's being reported from multiple sources, yet there's nobody's, there's no effort to change it from what I can see, at least in prenatal education. Even when I did a prenatal course here, I don't, I think they talked about C-sections for, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes mm-hmm. and it, it was not in depth. And even as someone who's you know, in my OB rotation, I got to see a C-section. I've learned extensively about C-sections. I don't think I would feel prepared if I had had one because we didn't review it when I was pregnant. So. Right. It's not, it's kind of out of mind. Exactly. And, and I think that happens to a lot of people. And then you get those emergency C-sections and people are like, oh my God, what? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, why, why am I being wheeled back here? Why are all these people around me? Why is everybody running? It's like, something happened and hopefully they debrief with you after the fact so you understand what happened. Yeah and I know there are lots of of postpartum like nurses and doctors and other professionals trying to do those things but you know sometimes people slip through the cracks and yeah and it's it's unfortunate that that happens and that that the system is the way that it is that we're not offering the support that people actually need for even just simple things. And, and the C-section scar is, is really simple. It's not, yes. it's not super complex to teach about, but right. some people are missing out on that. And then they have problems later on, or they think things, and we were talking about this in the last episode, that's why I'm thinking about it so much, but, you know, they think things like having numbness for six, seven, eight months after is just, you know, this is something I have to live with, but it's not, but we just don't educate, like we don't talk about it. Right. So how would they know? Yeah. I, I had no idea about the numbness with my C-sections. 
Yeah. I, I had not regained feeling between the two. And yeah, I had no idea. It was so weird to poke it and not even know that I was poking it. And that happens to so many people. And and we were saying in the last episode how it's normalized. It's just like, oh yeah, that happens. But but then you go and see a pelvic PT and they're like, oh, well, actually we can, we can try and work, work on, on that. that. And yep. you're like, what? <laughs> like the things I didn't know until I saw a pelvic physiotherapist in pregnancy, I was like, wait, that's not something that has to happen to me. I didn't know that. <laughs> so it's, it's just, you know, those, those gaps in the education, um, which is unfortunate. And I, I really hope that as a collective, we can try and fill them so that, so. you know, less women suffer afterwards. Yeah. It's like in looking around, I have not found good what to expect when you're postpartum type of things. Right. Yeah. There's and lots of information about what to expect with the baby. Yes. It's always about the baby. <laughs> yes. It's always about the baby and the baby is super important, but if we don't have the birthing person taken care of, how can we take care of the baby? You can't pour from an empty cup as they say. So, right. Yeah, no, that's, it's so true. And we need to offer, you know, the birthing person more, more support, more education, more information, more access to resources, all of those things, because a lot of the time, and I know, I don't know if it's the same for in the US, from what I heard it is, here, if you see an OB, you don't get a follow-up appointment for the birthing person till six weeks postpartum, which is a a large gap of time where, yeah, you know, things can happen and you have nowhere to turn, or if you're not provided with like, you know, numbers you can call or resources you can access in that time period, there's lots of women who are just like, well, I guess this is how it is now. And then they don't talk about the problems they're dealing with. Right. And then, you know, you see your OB at six weeks and either you don't have time to address the things that you've been dealing with for the past six weeks, or you forget because you're thinking about other things. Right. Or and your OB has a 15 minute time slot for exactly. you and you don't have time to get through your list of items. Yeah. And that's from the research I've read, that's a pretty commonly reported problem the time period yes so you know there's just yeah it's definitely an area that needs improvement to to put it simply yeah we're starting to see some improvement um most of our providers are seeing people back at two weeks postpartum which is so good yeah but it could it, it could be more i mean the pediatricians are seeing the babies almost weekly Right. And, and they see them so soon after birth as yeah. well. And I know COVID has been a huge challenge for postpartum follow-up too. Yeah. yeah. Lots of virtual visits. So people aren't having, you know, their pelvic exam afterwards. And it, there's people who, whose stitches haven't even been examined and, and they're like seven months postpartum now or eight months. Yeah. So, you know, so there's just little things that are kind of slipping through. And I know that the pandemic is making it harder, but the, those issues also existed before from what, from what I've heard. Oh, yes, they did. <laughs> it's just being called out a little bit more now. It, exactly. I think people are getting a little bit more ballsy with <laughs> mentioning it because there's, there's the opportunity now to be like, hey, you know what? This is worse now than it was before and it was already pretty bad. So yes. let's figure it out. <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about postpartum the experience because we're talking about you know all these all these gaps but the immediate postpartum experience when you know mom or the birth person is still in the hospital what is that like from a nurse's perspective it's a whirlwind we want to spend all of our time with the family that needs us however we often have three or four families that need us all the time and it is, it's challenging and trying to get to the family that needs us the most. And how do and you figure out which family needs you the most? <laughs> it is, it is truly looking at the whole picture as like, all right, what's going on in here? All right, this is her third baby. 
I think she can handle this for the next half hour. I'm going to go help this mom feed. Mm-hmm. Oh no. She's calling out saying that she's bleeding. Um, nope. Now this one needs to feed or this baby's choking. It's, it's taking all of those calls at the same time. Whirlwind. <laughs> yes. And we're lucky enough that we are a busy unit. We are a high volume birthing center. So we will have eight, 10, 12 nurses on the unit at any time, but I've worked in units where they do 50, 60 births a month and you have one, maybe two postpartum nurses. Oh my God. And there is never enough for us to go around. No. And we have to put out that we have to make the family feel like they are the only family we have. And I think the majority of us do a good job of that, but there are days where there is not enough of a postpartum nurse to go around. It doesn't matter if you have your nursing assistance or your lactation support or the peds are there. There's just not enough of us to go around. How many patients do does one nurse normally have like on a good even day, for example? In our system, it's usually three to four couplets. So that's the um, mom and the baby together. Right. We sometimes have somebody in our nursery that can back us up if we need. Um, Our charge nurse is usually not in staffing. Mm -hmm. Like she's in charge, but she doesn't have an assignment. Right. So she's another backup that we have. But right now with COVID, they are juggling the, all right, I have two extra people who needs them. Where can they go? Can they go to labor? Can they go to antepartum? Do they need to go to med surge? oh, wait, this person used to be an ICU nurse. They need her. So they're juggling all of that on top of our assignments. So they can't always step in. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, three to four couplets is as heavy as when I first started as a new grad and we were taking six and seven couplets. Wow. It is, it is so heavy with the documentation requirements that we have. Um, making sure that we're meeting the needs of the family and meeting the needs of the providers around us. It's a lot. Yeah. And I bet someday, I mean, with any, anywhere you work in nursing, every day is so different depending on who kind of rolls through the door, right? So some days you might have three or four people who are relatively low key and, you know, don't need a lot. And then the next day you get the three or four people, or even one person and three who are low key, but the one person is very high needs. Yes. So it's just so unpredictable. It would be so difficult to manage when you have a really busy day. You just, there's no way of knowing when that day will happen. (laughs) Right. Right. And it's still, even when it's busy like that, it's still, you still go home with a sense of accomplishment because the family's made it through the day mm-hmm. and you know, you handed them off to an amazing nurse for night shift or day shift, whatever shift you're coming off of. And when you come back in, they're either going to still be there or they're going to head home and you hope you get a follow-up. Like they send a letter to the hospital or they send a picture of them and the baby. Yeah. Like, Oh my God, they look so cute. They're, they're doing good. You hope you get that kind of follow-up. Yeah. I bet that's rewar- probably it's so rewarding, rewarding right? Yeah. Yes. And going back to what you mentioned about COVID and kind of the uh, charge nurse having so much more on their plate, how has it changed the role for postpartum, like for nursing and for families? We went from pretty much an open door policy for visitation to the the, um, birthing person, support person, and a doula if they have one. Oh, so they're still allowed to have doulas. Yes. For a while we had said no doulas and I don't know who that came from or where that came from, but we were finally able to get them back in. We have some families here that absolutely need the support of a doula. Yeah, no, for sure. So we're happy to see that now. And we have a growing list of doulas in the area. So every time one of them is saying, I have a, I have a family coming in around this time. It's like, all right, send me your certificate, send me your ID. We'll see you when you get here. And we're keeping a binder of all of that information. So we know who's coming. Oh, that's good. That's yes. good. And do you find that, so in terms of support people, mm-hmm. how many can 
people have. I've heard of, you know, in some places people can only have one person or they can't have anyone. (laughs) The majority of the time it's one. And if there's some other circumstances going on, um, we just work it out with management that the second person can come in. Right. So it, majority of the time it's one and it's usually the um, partner at the home or it's a sister or her mother. So it's usually the typical support people. Right. And does the doula count towards that? Or are they like, they're, a separate... they're an extra set of hands. Oh, that's great. Yes. We let them come in as an extra. There's no, why would we have a doula there, but not the part the other yeah exactly yeah. it doesn't make any sense but I've just heard like some places yeah. really are only letting one person in so a lot of people have had to drop the idea of having a doula or right yeah or people have birth by themselves which is so it's scary. so sad it's, it's so sad doing that yeah I can't even imagine like my husband was such a a crutch for me like I I don't think I I mean, I could have done it without him, mm-hmm. but it would have been a hundred times harder. Yes. So I yes. just can't, I, I feel for moms who, who've had to make that kind of journey on their own. Are there postpartum risks that you think are important for moms, parents, or their support people to be aware of. This is jumping away from COVID, but I mean, COVID is still relevant. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> because it's definitely a risk. If not oh, yes. just postpartum, right? Postpartum depression is a huge risk that is finally, over the last few years, getting the attention it deserves. Definitely. And there's still such a stigma around admitting that something's not right with me. And for the support person to admit there's something not right with me because a support person can also have it. Right. I I don't think people realize I'm 90% sure my husband had it with our first. People don't realize that actually. I was just reading something about that the other day, funnily enough. Yeah. And, And postpartum anxiety and the postpartum psychosis it's finally starting to take some precedent in the research. And I think once more word gets out about it, um, some of the high profile celebrities that have talked about it, I think that is going to help normalize the postpartum depression and anxiety stuff. I'm hoping the two week visits that we've started over the last year, year and a half, I think they're picking up more cases or Mm -hmm. screening people sooner so they can get on top of it faster. Early catching is so important with that. The other things I don't think the postpartum person really realizes is their risk for hemorrhage or for bleeding way too much. You can be fine. You can be sitting on your front porch and you feel a trickle and something let loose. This could be weeks after you give birth. Um, You can go home, pick up your baby and start bleeding. anything can happen. We don't always know what caused it. With some of our moms, postpartum preeclampsia, there's this myth out there that birth cures preeclampsia. We see so many moms come back in with high blood pressures, with that bad headache, the upper belly pain, just like the spots in front of their eyes. Mm -hmm. And we have to restart them on magnesium or put them on magnesium for the first time. And I I don't think people understand how serious that is. That has a lifelong effect on a woman. Yeah. Do you think that the misunderstanding around that is just like a lack of education about it beforehand or? I think it's a, at this point it is, but for the longest time, it was that myth of birth cures everything. We'll see you again in six weeks. (laughs) Oh, gestational diabetic birth will cure you. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's not true. No. The more we dig into this information, we're finding, oh, we're seeing an increased risk of diabetes 10, 15 years from now. We're seeing an increased risk of hypertension. Oh, cardiac issues later in life. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Full of risk. And I think you're right. People have a misunderstanding that those things just go away after birth because, but 
I've seen things that say that, you know, like yes. it, it was partially like our misunderstanding as well. But as we learn yes. more information, we're like not disseminating it fast enough to the lay public for them to right. know that, you know, that's no longer the case. Right. And some of this information is not coming out in the um, obstetric and midwifery journals. It's coming out in hypertension magazine or heart failure, or it's coming out in all these other areas. And you have to do a good lit search to find it and to pull it all together. And that's kind of challenging. Yes. You need to have somebody that has the time to sit and look at all of that. Do you think there's a way we can better prepare moms for those risks? One of our nursing orgs has done an amazing job of that. The, they put out their post-birth warning signs a few years ago, and many hospitals have adopted that education as part of their standard workflow. I think most places include it in discharge. We are still trying to get that same education put in their welcome to pregnancy binder or blank or whatever they get um, prenatally. Mm-hmm. But I think most people include it in discharge. So there's the fancy flyer that you can put out. It's a one-page thing. You can put it on a magnet. If you've bought into the full program, you get this two-page patient education handout that you can go over word for word and say, this is exactly what you are looking for. Right. Put this on your fridge. And um, our CDC last year, sometime in the last six months, put out a really good one-page infographic that had pictures of all of those issues. And we've started including that with some of our discharge information. We have it hanging up throughout our unit and I'm trying to picture it in my head. I think there's a QR code on it that people can scan and actually access it on their phones. Oh, that's super accessible then. Oh yeah. And it's pictures. People that can't, it it helps with that health literacy thing where people don't necessarily understand the words that we're saying, but they'll get a picture. Yeah, and that that's so much better because you know, thing paperwork is great, but health yeah. literacy is such a barrier, and it's I don't think the handout is has been for a long time the superior for, way to no. to give people information, right? No, and my generation and the upcoming generation, how many of us really deal in paper anymore? Exactly, even even healthcare isn't dealing in paper anymore for the like we're trying to wean it out, right? It's mostly electronic. So it makes sense for us to provide information to other people Mm -hmm. in that format as well. Yeah. I mean, giving them a magnet that they can slap on the refrigerator is one thing. It's good. Yeah. Binder full of flip through this and find your answer. It's not the way of the world anymore. No. And, and we know now that, you know, most people in postpartum, especially also in pregnancy are, googling things like yes. that, that that is a and, and just even outside of pregnancy just in yeah. general dr google is, yes. is a big big thing right now so yes if we can provide information in ways that is as simple as doing that that's how you get to people really right yes. so a magnet is great because it's on your fridge it's in your eyesight all you have to do is look at, right at it it's right there yes so there's no hard work to it right. and that's what people want they want their information right now. (laughs) Yes. Let's talk about your research a little bit. Can you tell me a little bit about it? So I know it's into delaying the initial bath, which actually surprising a lot, surprising number of people don't even know is a thing. Um, Although it's, you know, it's implemented a lot of places now, but I've had I had moms because I reached out for questions and people were like wait are you supposed to do that so (laughs) it's definitely something that's not well known to everyone so can you tell me like what you looked at specifically when you did this research and what have the results shown so far this came this study came about because we were having so many families in our area ask us not to bathe our babies And we had no idea why, because at the time our standard of care was, all right, we got four good sets of vital signs. We're going to wash your baby. And now you can hold your baby. Yeah. (laughs) And we couldn't figure it out. So I was still on night shift at the time. And I worked with our medical librarian to do a lit search. And we only came across one article. That's it. And there was really nothing out there to say, well, bathe them this 
early for that, bathe them this early for that. There, there was nothing out there. Our unit put this together with um, one of our nurse scientists that we have in the hospital. And we wanted to know if there were benefits to this. Um, we specifically looked at exclusive breastfeeding because that was an easy metric to look mm-hmm. at. But we also looked at baby temperatures because we were having a lot of kiddos that really dropped their temps after that early bath. And they either had to go into the warmer or try skin to skin. It's like, oh, after an hour that didn't do it. So you're going under the warmer. So we were, we were looking at the separation factor. Right. And we tried to mirror that other study as much as we could. So we can say that we replicated this and we did show this, this result. And we had a similar result as that other study. And we showed that delaying the bath, the baby's temperatures were more stable. Hmm. It makes sense when you think. Oh yeah. And we also showed that there may be, there may be correlation between delaying the bath and improved breastfeeding. And we think it might be due to, we're not stressing them again so soon after birth. So they're able to spend time with mom, dad, they're they're able to do their skin to skin, their snuggles, this, that, everything else, work on the latching. And then oh my God, you're putting what on me and you're scrubbing me and you're doing this. And it's like, oh my God, give me back to mom. So they had already built that mom is a safe spot before we did the bath. Huh. That, that's kind of what we're thinking. We, no way that yeah, we you can't prove that. Yeah, exactly. But we've ha- we had enough of the nurses talk about the differences that they'd seen between the way we did it before and the way we're doing it now. And as we were working on this, um, I started going to some of the OB nursing conferences and there was poster after poster after poster of people doing the same thing. Oh, no way. Yes. So it's becoming very common um, across the U.S. that this is happening. Yeah, I've, I've seen it as well here. So, okay. And I know that like with the midwives at least, and I'm sure that they stay on the pulse of, you know, American research as well. We, we were, we were told not to like bathe her right away. It was no rush basically. Right. Right. Um, they wiped her off mm-hmm. and then it was like, okay, whenever, like in a couple days or whatever, like there, there was no, there was no immediate need to bathe right. her after she'd been kind of wiped down. Right. So we just yeah. didn't because I, I had, I mean, I haven't read that much into it, but now that I know more, I will read more into it. There's some thought that keeping the vernix on the skin, that cheesy white, yeah, that that's actually really beneficial to the baby because there's moisturizers in there. There's um, antimicrobial properties to it. There's all sorts of good things about vernix. Yeah. And that's what I've read that like, I've, I had seen that. So I was like, well, I mean, if she, she's not like, there's no immediate need to bathe her. So why would we kind of thing? Right. Um, just to test it out, but yeah. it's cool to hear about the temperatures as well. And it really, like all of that makes sense. Like if you thought about it from mm-hmm. another perspective, it totally makes sense, but it's cool to see it actually reflected in a study. And the attachment part is, is interesting as well. Like the breastfeeding that, that I wouldn't have even thought of, but. Yeah. If you can get a couple of good breastfeeds in before you bathe that baby, I think it makes a huge difference. It's like so interesting. Yeah. It's like we, we see it after a circumcision too. We could have this baby that's latching. Okay. Mm -hmm. And the family's opt for a circumcision and we struggle to get that baby back to the breast. Hmm. But if you have a baby that is latching well or, or bottle feeding well and doing great before the circumcision, they're more readily able to go to the breast. So is it a stress thing or is it is there something else that we haven't looked at yet? That's an interesting area for future research. Mm -hmm. Do you think then that circumcision is also something that should be delayed longer then? As the postpartum nurse with 16 years of experience, (laughs) I say if the baby's not latching and super spitty, I think we need to wait a little bit. Let me get through the next few feeds and we'll reevaluate. But that, again, is a conversation between the nurse and the person doing the circumcision and the parent. Of course. Of course. I just wondered. Yeah. In general. (laughs) 
when we have that conversation and we can come to that agreement, I, the outcomes are usually quite a bit better. It's like the baby doesn't struggle as much. Afterwards. Yeah. 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 Interesting. It's all interesting information. So you mentioned to me that you're going to be reopening this data set to see if there's long-term benefits as well. Yes. Do you, yes. Do you have any ideas like of what type of benefits you might see if you're going to see any or... I think we have to resubmit everything. We were going hot and heavy on looking at this until COVID hit and it's taken the back burner a little bit. We're trying to look at what was the actual, how long did these kiddos actually breastfeed before formula or food were introduced? Like, did that make any kind of difference whatsoever? It's like, it's a very large data set that I had. Um, there's a physician that I'm partnering with. Um, she was brand new to our place and when this whole thing came out a couple of years ago and hunted me down within a week of this thing hitting the airways. <laughs> and she has all of these ideas that make complete sense around allergies and food intolerances and skin stuff. It's like, oh, oh, wow. So we're going to look at a lot of different factors right to see what's going or what may have gone on that sounds like it's going to be really interesting yes I'm I cannot wait until she and I can actually sit down and focus on this and start cleaning things up and combing things through and just to see what has happened yeah no I I'm I look forward to hearing more in the future because I mean sounds like there's lots of possible avenues that could go down and it could reveal some really important information yes because I've noticed especially when you mention allergies and stuff I have noticed that so many babies lately have issues with intolerances and allergies and Mm -hmm. all sorts of stuff and I just never remember that being the case before yeah so you wonder, you wonder yeah. what impacts that. It's, it's like even the skin to skin. Yeah. The practices we had when I had my first child was the baby goes to the warmer for two hours. We do the bath, then you can have your baby and we'll breastfeed the baby. Yeah. With my second one, we'd initiated skin to skin. So as soon as I got to recovery room that my, my second one went skin to skin and the kind of bond I have with him is so different than with my older one. Right. They're both great bonds, but they're different. And that's, that is an interesting area of research as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's yeah, no. Cause I mean, with Maggie, I, we, she was born, I pulled her out basically with mm-hmm. the midwife and she was on me till we got in the car to leave. Yeah. So I can't even imagine just because I didn't have a baby during a time when, you know, they still put them in the warmer and, and everything, but it, it must be, it it would make a difference. And it would be subtle. It's not that you can't still have an amazing relationship with your child. Like it's it's not that, but there would certainly be a difference because those first couple hours I spent with her I don't know. It really helps with bonding. Yeah. It's a spiritual experience. Exactly. I I can't even describe it because it was just like all of, all of your hormones are firing off and everything, but it, it, it's so special. You Mm -hmm. don't get that. I mean, you get to cuddle them lots when they get home, but it's not exactly the same as that moment. Correct. Um, which is why I think it's so important to make the effort to make that moment happen, no matter the circumstances of the birth. Yes. If we can. And, and it's not yes. that, you know, it's any less, if, if somebody doesn't get that experience, it's not going to ruin their relationship no. with their oh, child no. or anything like that. I don't mean it like that, but I just, no. I think if we can make it happen, it, you know, I hear from so many C-section moms who, who really wanted that and some get it but Mm -hmm. some didn't and and they they always say that's like one of the things that they wish they had fought for more yeah even for a couple minutes of that that initial skin to skin right it's yes it's just magical yeah our neonatology team um started doing that 
several years ago that if the baby, if it, even if it was a preemie or a super preemie baby, right. if the baby was stable enough that they could do it, a few minutes of skin to skin while we're doing the monitoring that we need to do the monitoring, they'll do that. This way, the mom has that moment before the baby's whisked down the hall to the NICU for the rest of the stabilization process. And I think that has made a huge difference in the coping of the moms that we see. Mm -hmm. And they're in the NICU more than they used to be. And I think that makes a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. And you'd wonder too, in terms of like research, what the effect of that, those few moments might be on the baby. Yeah. Because who knows, like, we've seen through other stuff that that the skin to skin and and that kind of stuff can be so powerful you wonder does does it make a difference to make the effort to do that with a preemie or micro preemie or whatever it may be yeah wow (laughs) that's that's amazing that they do that though because I know that they don't do that everywhere and no they don't and and it is really hard for the moms to cope with that You know, some parents told me that they kind of, I don't want to say they had a bath forced on their child, (laughs) but they felt that they couldn't say no for whatever reason. Yeah. Do you have any like guidance on how parents can better advocate for a delayed bath if that's what they want or if they, you know, they've heard of the benefits and they want to try it? They need to stand firm. I, I think that's the only way that we realize that oh, this really could be something that we need to look at was we had families that were like, no, you are not bathing the baby. And if you have more and more people standing firm on their own care plan and what they want, and they've made that educated decision, I think that's what's going to change how nurses and providers do things. We, we look to the families all the time to guide us in how they want their care right? and to be open to what they're telling us. Yeah. And, and that's a, that's a whole change in how healthcare is done. It, it, for the longest time, it was the physician says, do this. So it's like, oh my God, I got to do this. I, I can't not do this. The physician said, do it. Yeah. And now it's like, eh, I don't quite agree with it. Let's work on this together. It's more of a partnership than it used to be. But it takes sometimes the families and the patients standing up and being firm. It's like, I am not doing this. Yeah, because I think I think we're still, even though we've moved into more of a time of partnership, which is amazing, we're still yeah. a little bit thinking like, oh, the doctor said yes. we have to do this. So this yes. is- Yes. Um, yeah. We also have our parents and grandparents that are still leading by what they did in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And I was like, I remember getting into many discussions with my grandmother about caring for my kids. It's like, no, we don't do it that way anymore. (laughs) It's like, no. So we still have a lot of that. Yes. And even the parents and grandparents are starting to come around with, oh, this is how it's done now. So that's some of the battle sometimes. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely in pregnancy and as a parent, a lot of advice from other people (laughs) that uh, you may not necessarily agree with that is not realistic (laughs) or is outdated. (laughs) And take what you hear and see in some of those Facebook mommy groups with a grain of salt. Exactly. I'm just writing, I'm speaking at a mom-to-be retreat on the weekend virtually Mm -hmm. And I was just writing about that, how you kind of have to take all that advice you hear in pregnancy and throw it right in the trash (laughs) and set your own expectations and goals for, for parenting and postpartum. Because first of all, every experience is so different. Every baby is so different and what works for you maybe something totally different from what, you know, your aunt told you worked for her or your grandma said work for her 50 years ago or whatever it may be. So right. Right. It, parenting is full of that kind of stuff. So yeah, it's really important to be informed 
and then to advocate for the things that you want or that are important to you and that that happens from pregnancy to parenting and beyond right yeah oh yeah so if a bath is something you want to delay you just got to fight for it (laughs) keep your baby skin to skin say I'm not ready for the bath now or I'll do it when I get home and there you go yeah because no I mean nobody can make make you do it really when it comes down right right like the only things that I would highly recommend bathing your baby early for would be if mom has HIV or another bloodborne pathogen. That would be the only thing that that, I would. Yeah. But otherwise we haven't really come across many other reasons why there has to be a bath. Right. So the research then didn't really show any reasons why you should bathe your child immediately. Yeah. And before we even started this project, we met with infection control and talked about what we were looking to do. And they just looked at us and said, enjoy. <laughs> so I mean, we have a really good infection control team. So when they're willing to just say, have at it, it's like, okay. So then I guess the infection per, uh, control perspective is that there's no immediate risk to not bathing your baby right away. Yeah. No, we just wear gloves and yeah. Of course, they're still yeah. covered in bodily fluid. Like, yeah. you know, yeah. makes what sense. the families choose to do with their own baby is what the family choose to do with their own baby. If grandma wants to kiss on the baby, have at it. So final question for you, Heather. Mm-hmm. Do you have any words of wisdom or guidance that you'd pass on to a pregnant or newly postpartum woman or birthing person? Trust your body. If you are flat out exhausted, listen to yourself and figure out what's going on. Um, It's okay to call and say something's not right. It is totally okay to do that. If you have friends, family, wanting to come over they just say great but you're bringing me a casserole (laughs) and just coming over to love on the baby you need some help too it is okay to say i will take this order from chipotle it's really okay to do that yeah and it's also okay to say i can't have anybody right now i just need a break so those are some of the big things it's okay to advocate for yourself yeah, it's, it's okay to do most things. It, it, we just act like for some reason there's this like unspoken rule in parenting and postpartum where you have to fit into this very specific mold. And if you step outside of that line in any way, you're doing something wrong. But really the realistic situation is that most people struggle with things that you will probably struggle with at some point. Yes. And it's okay to talk about them. Yeah. And if you speak up, you might find your neighbors having the same issue. If you like this podcast, hit that subscribe button. You can also check out our website at www.elephantinthewomb.com and subscribe to the blog email list for blog and podcast updates.